0: If I were to ask you, what are the attributes of the church? What would you begin writing down, or maybe some of you already have memorized, or would you, where would you begin to think, and kind of what types of categories? If I was to say, what are the attributes, and then I was to cheat and give you half an answer and say, there are three of them. It still is not narrowing it down quite clearly enough, right? Because, we, well, what, what type of attributes, what categories are we dealing with? Well, if we were to explain it from the book of Ephesians, clearly we would say together, and I say clearly, of course, but we would say that the church is holy. It is apostolic. We receive the testimony of holy scripture. It is holy. We are a called out possession, a people for God, holy before him to be holy as he himself is holy. We look at the church and we say it is a communion, a gathering of God's people who are holy, apostolic, and Catholic. These are the three attributes of the church, holy, apostolic, and Catholic. When we speak of Catholic, once again, we are saying that it didn't start today with me. Many of us get confused because, again, as Dan pointed out, just briefly, Catholic can only mean one thing. You know. <laughs> We're speaking of it different. We're speaking of it as it should be thought of, as the Reformers themselves saw themselves as Reformed Catholics. The true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, not what has become Babylon. Babylon. It is a true church that didn't start today. We see it across the pages of Scripture, beginning really, quite frankly, constituted with Abraham. And then we see it continue to take shape through progressive revelation all the way through to where we are today. But it didn't stop in 90 AD and then pick up again in 2013, where we now come up with all our own thoughts. And we describe our faith however it is we've decided is best to describe it. Because, again, we're autonomous. We just stand alone in isolation, decide for ourselves. We would confess the church is much different than that. There is, as Paul said, but one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. This we then describe together in those categories of a holy, apostolic, and by that means universal or Catholic communion. This morning, the confession known then just briefly is introduced to you as the Apostles' Creed. Dan just briefly mentioned once again was originally a baptismal formula. It developed over several centuries, the first time for your thoughts. The first time we find the title or this doctrine appearing in this form with this title, Apostles' Creed. It was 389 A.D. But even at 389 A.D., where we first see the title inscribed, Apostles' Creed, its theological framework, as we work through it, we said it and confessed it this morning. We confessed it about a year and a half ago, maybe somewhere, where it is an answer in the Heidelberg Catechism as well, in the description of what does the church believe. So you are at least somewhat familiar with its contents, as we have confessed it a handful of times here at Redeemer, but even from 389, its theological framework was informally in play as early as 200 A.D. I say informally because it was not stamped Apostles' Creed, as I said to you, until first time we see it anyway, is 389. But in 200 A.D., listen to what many consider to be its textual ancestor. So so think 389, someone stamped on the top of it, Apostles' Creed. But think even 389, 200 A.D. Now you're thinking John died somewhere in the mid-90s. By 200, we have baptismal candidates being asked these three questions. Question number one to the candidate Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty? The answer to which was expected is, I believe. Number two, do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit? And of the Virgin Mary, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and died and rose the third day living from the dead and ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father, the one coming to judge the living and the dead. I believe. Thirdly, do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? I believe. From 200 A.D., you see, creeds, I hope to persuade you. Sometimes I feel that perhaps I will not be able to. But don't worry, I persevere. To persuade you that creeds serve a fundamental role in the church. And that they have long served a fundamental role in the life of the church as early as post-apostolic times. The dying off of the apostles, the church framed their teaching in summary form. That it wouldn't be lost. That faithful summaries would be describing what Scripture has taught. Children would memorize them, baptismal candidates would have to confess them, and pastors would be ordained by means of them. One author notes the importance of credo-Christianity this way, in making its confession, the church lifts up its voice to do what it must do, speak amazement of the goodness and truth of the gospel and the gospel's God. In this way, creeds and confessional formulae are the servants of the gospel in the church. You could think of Paul's words to Timothy. If you go through your New Testament, you'll see creeds, confessional statements, well embedded within the text of Scripture. Again, the post-apostolic community didn't start something new either. They built upon that which was modeled for them by the apostles themselves. You think early on in the book of Acts, the shortest and quickest, yet perhaps the most deadly to confess and controversial, Jesus is Lord. Followed by Paul to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, Paul tells him, Timothy, follow, You know, hear the words here, follow the pattern of, of the sound words that you have heard from me. The structure, the pattern, the form, what I have entrusted to you. He goes on in verse 14 to say, and by those means, following this pattern of sound words, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This is the work of a minister. To follow the patterns of sound words given to us in Scripture and faithfully testified and summarized by the one Catholic church or our one universal church. This morning, I want to use the creed that way with you. I want to use it as was described just a moment ago, namely as a servant of the gospel in the church, that it would strengthen us, firm up our hearts in the gospel of grace, that we would rejoice, not that we are singular or maybe insular and idiosyncratic, but we this Lord's Day gather with the church all around the world that confess our faith together in the lord jesus christ the particular statement of concern that i want to draw your attention to maybe behind me is giving it away and this lord's day you have gathered a, what we call easter to celebrate the resurrection so i want to draw your attention to a brief exposition of the apostles creed statement the third day he rose from the dead we are currently as a family teaching our children the apostles creed maybe that's why my heart was drawn to it as my time has been spent much in it for the last few months we are teaching our children in times of family worship to be able to memorize their way through the apostles creed i have three reasons of rationale for why i want to do that with my family and i want you to do that (laughs) with your family And I have three reasons of rationale before we just begin our analysis of the creed from Scripture. And they are number one, I never want my children to grow up thinking that there is such a thing as a creedless Christianity. They're not islands unto themselves. They have no right and rule of authority to simply describe their own confession, to make their own doctrine. And yet the current of culture says and screams otherwise. Make it up as you go. I think different. Upon what grounds? I never want my children, Charlotte now says, and Jesus Christ our ward. But it's a start. I never want her, even at two, to think I ever knew a creedless Christianity. Number two, it anchors their hearts and their faith deeply in events of history this is what we'll see in the creed as we briefly examine it in just a moment but it anchors their heart of faith in events of history again those are constantly under attack and it will anchor their heart well through the apostles creed as i hope to demonstrate number 3 my third rationale is a father and a pastor to my family for memorizing the Apostles' Creed together in family worship is that it provides them with the basic contours of a sound and orthodox Christian theology. It doesn't say everything. And some things, indeed, are under dispute. Right? I say no surprise. The descent clause. He descended into hell. Well, okay, who's going to analyze that? Who comes at it from what way? How do we interpret it, spiritual or Physical. What do you mean by that? Are there some texts that seem to, no way, I'll never say that, right? Okay. It doesn't say everything, but it says, critically, something of a sound, orthodox, Christian theology. This, my children, needs to know. I need to know and confess. You need to know and confess. Procedurally, then, with that kind of rationale in place, let's divide the statement this morning that you see there, the third day he rose again from the dead. Let's divide it into its two parts, the one of its historical concern. So, we'll look at the history of the resurrection and why the creed is so committed to adding in there as we look at creeds and confessions moving all throughout the history of the church. We see this statement, the Third day, because you you right because you could say what is it he suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified, died, and was buried. He rose again from the dead. But but it didn't. The third day, he rose again from the dead. I, I want to consider just for a moment a brief concern of the Apostles' Creed for. The history of our faith, and then secondly, we'll take the second portion. He rose again from the dead. The theology of the creed. So we'll look at its historical concern, and then its theological concern as well. First, consider with me just for a brief moment, and we'll jump into a text of Scripture, as I'm sure you're desiring to jump in the text on this Lord's Day. We will in just a brief moment, but consider the history of the resurrection or the creed's concern over the history of the resurrection by the use of the third day clause. This is important and instructional for my children, for me, for you, together, for our one and holy Catholic Church to grasp that the creed explicitly ties our faith to real and actual historical events. That changed the world. Today, there is a deep desire to be unmoored in evangelicalism. A church that is without history. Again, because if we can deny the past or ignore it, we can become whatever we want. We can be something today. We can be something different tomorrow. It's all relative, but not to the creed. The concern for the church as they think together we must confessionally put together that which will pattern itself after the apostles' concerns and guard the good deposit entrusted to us, the church. How should we frame it? Well, let's put down he rose again. No, no. The third day he rose again from the dead. For we must call the church to recall their faith is anchored in real, actual, historical events. and These events change the world. We are not teaching the church to confess a fusion of ideas. We're not asking the church to celebrate, or to craft, or to write a philosophy of ideas. But ministers must be ordained unto their adherence of real events. Do you believe the third day He rose from the dead? It's not an idea, it's a reality. This is, as you would know as we're going through the book of Luke, nothing new. Again, the Apostles' Creed patterning itself after sound words already structured. It's extremely similar in its concern to Luke's gospel. Is it not you remember verse 4 of chapter 1? We spent four months there. Sometimes you guys don't laugh very loud, and the recordings go on, and everyone's like, wow, he's really intense. Did they spend four months there? Thanks. I hope that's getting picked up in the mic. Note to listener people laughed. No. Um, back to what we're doing. Similar to Luke, the creed's concern in placing our faith in actual and historical events. You recall, Luke writes as a historian. Not about ideas, but about a person. Not about a philosophy, but actual events. And do you remember why he said he must write this way for our sake? Do you remember why it was so important in Luke's rationale in writing the gospel that he wanted to give you a historical account, O Theophilus? Because, right, why does history matter? Luke says, oh, it absolutely does, because by grasping the historical realities of the events and the people and places involved, your faith might be certain, Luke said. I write to you in order that you may have certainty of the things that you have been taught concerning Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's all just a bunch of ideas. It doesn't matter if it actually occurred or not. It speaks to broader ideas, broader concepts. Bigger, grander stories and theories. Let's find ourselves in the story. There's actual event that matters. Your faith is anchored to it. And without it, you will lose certainty of your faith's truth. But I write, Luke says, in order that you may have certainty, I took the time to research, to meet, to interview, to write, to contrast and cross-reference so that when I write, you may be certain. Jesus really did live in Nazareth. Nazareth is a historical location. And that matters to you. The creed models this same concern built On Luke's concern, as well as the apostles, for the historicity of Christianity. If you would now turn to Matthew 27 just briefly so I can show you. I I think this is a, a little bit on the Captain Obvious side, but nonetheless can be helpful. And that is if we look at how exactly do we arrive at three days sequenced so that we would just be sure, again, certainty of the actual historical events, that the days do matter, that when the church comes to confess this Lord's day, the Lord's resurrection we confess it occurred on the third day, not some day, one day, I can't quite recall, the third day. How do we get to the third day sequence Is taught in Scripture? And I want to also, as I read it, convince you, did I tell you tw- chapter 27, if I didn't? Matthew 27, and I want to I show you how Scripture's concern as well, which again would make sense for the Apostles' Creed and early baptismal formula reaching all the way back to 200 A.D., again, within 100 years uh, of the death of the last apostle living. It isn't, it's uh, it's concerned then, growing out of the text of Scripture, taking its instruction from the pattern taught us in Scripture. Notice as I read how Scripture is concerned with the days. And then at the end of our sermon, we'll see... More so, why? Beginning in verse 57 of chapter 27, join with me. I'll read through 57 to 61, and then we'll stop. That will be day one. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Again, this is happening. These are real events. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Now, at the end of that point right there, that that text right there gives you when it was evening... And then he's placed in the tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. This, in your mind, theologically, you have arrived. You have arrived. How does it say? Risen. I'm getting too many of those together. You have arrived now at the first day. And notice the scriptural concern. Verse 57. When it was evening. 57 through 61, day one. Beginning day two now, again, as we move to the second day, scripture begins in verse 62, next day. That is, to be clear, after the day of preparation. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, We remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell all the people, he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is the day two event He was in the tomb, our Lord was in the tomb for the entirety of Saturday. So you have day one, which is critical, he actually died and he was actually buried on day one. By the time you move through the text, yet again, noting to you the significance of the day, you're in day two, but pay attention, Matthew says, to day three. Remember how he uses here the individual to say unto Pilate, after three days. And again, keep it secure until the third day. Matthew's letting you know right now, however, we're in day two, and this is what's taking place, but keep your eye on day three. Day three then arrives next in our text, chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath... Context, the gospel wants you to know these are real days. These are real events. He was really dead, and he was really buried. Not a day we can't remember, but a sequence of actual days. First, second, and third. Verse 1, now after For fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen From the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go, tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is day three, a precious day for our faith. For as we hear from Paul later, as Dan referenced earlier in our time of worship, if day three did not exist, our faith is in vain if we're only vaguely familiar with the idea that maybe he did, maybe he didn't, then our faith is in vain. Day three, our Lord rose from the grave. According to Matthew 28, 1 through 6, as you see there at the beginning portion, verse 1 and 2, it's sometime early Sunday morning before anyone came to the tomb to see his body. You see there, it's toward the dawn of the first day of the week. So the church, guarding the good deposit entrusted, being, as Paul describes it, the pillar and buttress of the truth, this is what the institution of the church is. And by means of guarding that good deposit, by being that pillar of the truth, by being that guardian of what is right and driving off by test what is wrong by keeping in stride with the pattern of sound words that Paul has provided us. Indeed, all the apostolic testimony has provided the church. The church then came together to preserve and confess the historical importance of the events of the resurrection. So, to lead the church for centuries to confess the third day he rose again from the dead. Furthermore, to note the significance of the third day. How the third day changed the worship and life of the early church. Again, not someday he rose. I can't remember, was it a Tuesday? Was it a I, you know, it's hard to... The third day first day of the week. It immediately transformed the worship and life of the early church. By 90 AD, I'll give you this reference, Revelation 110. And then you can put the book of Revelation somewhere in the 90s. So if you're looking here at this gospel account somewhere in the, uh, 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 well, the gospel account is later than that. The death of Christ will put somewhere in the early 30s. By the time we get to the 90s, we have the book of Revelation being given to the church. So from the resurrection standpoint of the mid-30s, early 30s, to the point of 90, the worship and life of the church was radically different. How so? John references not the last day of the week to be the day of worship, but he announces to the church, the first day is a day of worship. By 90 AD, this day, the third day, the day of resurrection had become the first day of primacy to the church. It is the day that the worship of the church is had, where we gather to feast, to be nourished our faith to be strengthened, to receive the sacraments, to hear the preaching of the word. It was known among the churches, as John wrote to them in Revelation 1, verse 10, the Lord's day. The first day of primacy was the day of resurrection that changed everything for the life of the church. It is not to meet on the last day, but the first day. Acts 20, verse 7, they broke bread when? On the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians sixteen two, Paul receives an offering from them and challenges them to give an offering. On what day were they gathering? The first day of the week. The first day, which was the third day. Day is now the Lord's day. So we gather on what day we now say it regularly, right? The Lord's day. Because this is indeed his day of resurrection. The history of Christianity matters. It must be preserved. It must be taught and instructed. We must meditate upon its place and importance that we do not assent to ideas or philosophies, but to real events with a real man who is both God and man, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who was not raised on some day, but on the third day, which is now his day the Lord's day. Consider, secondly, the second rationale for the creed to preserve very clearly and put forth that the church must confess and all of its ministers be ordained by confessing it was the third day that he rose from the dead is its theological significance. So that is point two as we transition to he rose from the dead, the creed's concern for true and Christian theology. I want to handle this portion simply this way. It it, it will be rather brief with you. And that is that I want us to understand that as we come together to confess, He rose from the dead. The third day, He rose from the dead. In order for us to make that statement, For each of us to say that, truly, the third day he rose from the dead, requires three unmovable theological commitments on our part. You think, wow, how much is in a single statement, right? But you can't just say it, there's other things that undergird it. There are three unmovable theological commitments that we make by confessing he rose from the dead. Number one, in confessing that he rose from the dead, we, the church, confess his word is absolutely true. It's unmovable. we must lay hold of it. We confess to say truly that we believe that he rose again the third day. We are actually confessing previously that his word is absolutely true. How so? Jesus repeatedly said, on the third day, I will rise. Consider Mark 8 31. This is our Lord speaking. I will die and in three days rise. Mark 9, he goes on in that short narrative. You could read today, Mark 8, 9, and 10. And Mark 8, 31, once again, I will die and in three days rise. Mark 9:31, I will die and and in three days rise. Mark ten thirty four. I will die, and in three days rise. When we, the church, gather to confess our faith corporately, one with another, and unto for the sake of one another, We confess the third day he rose again from the dead. We truly confess his word is absolutely true. The second underlying theological commitment that we as the church have as we come to confess our faith, the second unmovable theological commitment that undergirds our confession is number two, he is the son of God. We confess this in resurrection. He is the Son of God. Acts 2.29, I provide for you just briefly. I'll read the text for you. And think, wow, I say so much when I say he arose. Acts 2.29, brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. That's so significant. Here you'll see the descendant language because remember you're confessing he is the son of God. Peter's making this clear. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us this day. Well, then there has to be a descendant or or someone from his son or... Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Do you see what Peter just said there? Christ is David's descendant. Christ, Jesus, is the Son of God who sits upon the throne, who rules forever. He is the Son of God, if indeed He has risen. Peter goes on to say then, uh, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. When the church comes together to confess, the third day he rose from the dead. It is already committed to and therein does confess he is the son of God. This Peter makes clear. Thirdly, the third, again, unmovable. If we tweak that his word is not true, we undercut third day. The integrity of the statement itself. If we say that he is not the son of God, we strip it that he indeed is abandoned to Hades. Or his soul did see corruption. Or his flesh did see corruption. We must adhere to the scriptural testimony to truly say he did rise again from the dead and he is thereby the Son of God. Third, a third commitment we are making in the statement is that he is our only Savior. This is the third underlying Commitment on our parts that indeed is unmovable if we truly confess that we believe him to have risen from the grave on the third day from the dead. He is our only Savior. John 11, I provide you this brief text, John 11, 25 and 26. Listen to what Jesus says here in John eleven twenty five and 26. You're very familiar. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live. Do you see? You will live. Even though he dies... And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. When the church confesses what seems to be such a simple and straightforward statement, he rose again from the dead. The church has already proven she is absolutely and unwaveringly committed to the truthfulness of God's word. To the reality that Jesus of Nazareth is the true Son of God. And that by Him and Him alone can we be saved. We have gathered this Lord's because it is the Lord's day the first day he rose again so we understand it and preserve it and confess it together as the church historically it's true the third day He rose again from the dead. Let us pray. Father, we praise you for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for his act of obedience. There is no hope without it. Our hearts doth continuously seek evil. We cannot, by pure performance, think in terms of salvation. Those two things couldn't be further apart.